Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Richard Sweat is a former member of Congress and ambassador to Denmark. He holds the distinction of being the only architect to serve in the U.S. Congress in the 20th century. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, he talks to us about what he's up to today, about the role architects must play in civic leadership and the importance of design thinking in solving the social and environmental problems we face today. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Well, thank you, Richard Sweat, for joining us at This is Design Intelligence. Well, I hope I can contribute to the intelligence side of that, but I'm, I'm very pleased to be here, and I think this is a timely conversation. Well, it is an honor to be with you. Your storied past, you have been a congressman, you uh, have the esteemed distinction of being the only architect that served in the U.S. Congress in the 20th century, which in and of itself says something's wrong in Congress when we don't have design thinkers. Well, we don't have anyone in the 21st century. I didn't make it that far, and, and we don't have someone to take that title in the 21st century. So we're, we're actually in a vacuum right now. Amazing. And then you served with distinction as an ambassador to Denmark, appointed by uh, Mr. Clinton, mm -hmm. and uh, you just you and you have stayed involved broadly through government, pretty much all your life. It's a, it's it's really an honor to be here with you. We are recording this in Washington D.C. right before we begin the Design Futures Council Leadership Summit on the future of environmental responsibility. So you have given much of your life to the climate prosperity enterprise solutions um, because it is more it's it's more than a quote unquote money making thing there's a mission behind well, CPES. so far it's not a money making yeah. thing. <laughs> that's that's the honest truth yeah. but it, it is it, it's a commitment to creating work and businesses for people who have no work have no business in markets where there are no markets so that as they gain employment, they are cleaning up the environment in their locale. And we initially tried to do this in the United States. We started this company, we is uh, my partner, Michael Rowan and myself. Michael was very successful in establishing the tribal corporations for the Alaskan native tribes, the Inuit, the uh, Eskimo, the Tlingit. These were people that were uh, living at the uh, borders of, of society. They were hunter-gatherers, you know, seals and fish were their main mm. staple, and, you know, $2 a day was their, their largest income. And when they uh, sued the government for their land to get it back, they were kind of at each other's throats and, and not really well coordinated. And Michael is a, an extraordinary uh, political mind who was up there teaching English of all things ended up the mayor of Bethel and and uh, or the town manager I guess and most importantly helped them to organize around a common cause that unified the tribes and helped them to achieve what ultimately was a sliver a very small sliver but a significant sliver of the uh, oil revenues coming off the northern slope. And the way he did it, you, you will love Michael when you meet him someday, but he did it by going around within the community and realizing that they were a modest, a 
um, self-effacing, a, a quiet people who figured the white man was going to run roughshod over everything and, and they just were going to stay out of the way. Mm -hmm. But what he did was he was able to convince one of them that the others would support that individual if they ran for the board of selectmen in their community. Because they don't talk much, they never checked out to find out that none of them did. And he did that with all of them. So they all, in, in essence, ended up voting for each other, thinking that the others were all voting for them. And they did, and they, but it wasn't until after the fact. So oh, the whole thing yeah. sort of came about, you know, without everyone or anyone really realizing that that was what Michael was doing. And, and through that, then, then they turned around and they made him the town manager because he had convinced them all to run. And, and it really began to transform the way that they thought about themselves. And through that came legislation that was actually called the uh, Native Alaskan Lands Reclamations Act, which what ultimately gave back to these 212 tribes land that they were suing for and some revenue stream that it was decided not to be given as cash into their hands, but rather as finance into their businesses, their, tri their tribal corporations. They had 212 tribes, 212 wow. tribal corporations, and they were made up of fishing, hunting, wood cutting, mineral mining, you know, all of the things that were native to Alaska. And over the last 40 years, this has gone on. They have realized corporate growth of over $155 billion. And they are um, no longer poor. They're in the upper middle class. And it's, a, it's the only example of that transformation in the world where that kind of sustainability has occurred wow. through the growth of these tribal corporations. And, and the, the people learned how to run companies. They learned how to work for salaries. Mm -hmm. They learned how to watch their dividends grow as the companies grew. And now um, nine of the top 20 companies in Alaska are all indigenous owned companies coming from this this experiment that was successful. And, and what they did, and this is the real key to it, was they established essentially a sovereign wealth fund where a certain percentage of their revenues had to go into a, a public pot, which then fed the other businesses yeah, in the community. Yeah. And you know, this is, uh, Norway is proving that they're doing this very successfully with their uh, oil that they're drilling out of the North Atlantic. The countries that don't do this well, like Venezuela, Nicaragua, I mean, those are examples of, of what not to do. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, to the extent that we can be complementary to ourselves, the United States as a whole has been good at this, but we haven't done it through sovereign wealth funds. And that, I think, is something that, that uh, we need to think about with regard to the environment, because the expenses that it will take to clean the environment people don't often stop and think how detrimental that will be to the lower classes. Right. And we have to take care of people first mm -hmm. and, and, and give them the kind of incentive to educate and broaden their minds so that they may ultimately come up with the solutions for solving the environmental problems. Just fantastic. It's a wonderful case study and story. And of course, when you uh, disassemble it and, and look at all the pieces and parts that made up that story, it's how to take those pieces and parts and replicate them in other nations in the world. And so 
there were a set of unique properties related to that story that may not fit in every place, but there's always a commonness that could be found, which I'm thinking is what CPES is looking to replicate. Well, and that's why we always come back to the design professions, because everyone who is in the design professions, I don't care whether you're an architect or an engineer or a builder or you have to be a generalist. You have to understand how multiple parts fit together to make a functioning whole. And in the United States, um, with all due respect to our uh, host, lawyers have fractured our community, our professions. And everybody is, is at odds with each other as opposed to working collectively. And that was what my book was about, Leadership by Design. Mm -hmm. I was looking for a way to in inspire, maybe that's too strong a word, I'm not very good at that, but I was looking for a way to help people understand that we need leaders who understand how to fit all those pieces together that are generalists. And we don't have that. And we're not producing that. We're not producing that from our own professions because it's been 150 years since architects have had any real influence on the leadership of this country, let alone the broader world. But we don't have that kind of leadership in, in any of the other professions either. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is tearing us apart and it is, it is keeping us from solving the very difficult problems that, that are confronting us, whether they be the social problems, the ethnic problems, or the environmental problems. Absolutely. They are all not being addressed because we don't have the right kind of leadership. It's an extraordinary point. We could just spend the rest of our time just on that. Uh, it was two years ago that we began to really focus on this at Design Intelligence, realizing that in design school, doesn't matter which flavor of design school you went to, leadership is not taught. Leadership is not understood. Uh, you suddenly enter the profession and you kind of make it up as you go and you suddenly get the baton and you're the managing partner of a firm and you... You've never been formally taught or mm -hmm. oriented to leadership, and mm -hmm. on and on we go. Well, you have the syllabus for that course in your hands. Yes, because we do. That's, that's, what right. I'm, yeah. that's what I have been teaching, and, and not in architecture schools. I, I tried to send it to my alma mater to no avail, but, but I'm teaching the course in the uh, MBA programs uh, in the local colleges in New Hampshire. Well, you need to come and, and teach some of this at the Design Intelligence Leadership Institute, which we established a little over a year ago and, and are operating across the profession at this point. We call it redefining an understanding of mm -hmm. leadership mm -hmm. because we say that leadership is a thing you do together, not alone. And most of the business schools it's not about collaborative leadership. No. It's about self-serving advancement at the yes. end of the day. In this country, that is very much the it, case. It really is. Um, it's really a problem. And we see the results of that and how we address issues like climate change mm. or urban planning or uh, Which go social hand equity. Hand. They all go together, right? Yeah. It all really goes together. It really it's should really interesting. go together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's funny. You were talking about you know where we used to be at a place where the architect was in a more generalist view where they could see the larger picture of things. Um, we speak about this regularly that the specialization of the discipline by market entity has caused us to become so specialized that we don't really understand the whole anymore. We've, we see only the trees, but not the forest uh, per se. In, in my book, I write about that um, in, in a particular event that occurred in 1919. It was an AIA convention at which they decided, they being the architects, decided that 
the architecture profession was no longer a social design exercise. It was an aesthetic design exercise. And, you, you know, when I was reading the material about that, it, you almost brought me to tears because I just saw these people just so totally didn't get it. And yes, they were struggling with World War I, which was decimating the profession. But they, the profession up until the 1890s with Daniel Burnham and the Great White City, you know, all that, you know, the rebuilding of Chicago, you know, all that was being done, you know, he was married to the daughter of the Union Pacific Railroad. I mean, how else do you network to, to have power in a society than, you know, through your marriages and your children's marriages and so forth? These people understood that. Frederick Law Olmsted understood that. But, you know, by 1919, we were in a place where they were saying, no, 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 we just want to be aesthetic designers. And you could see that that was kind of the door slamming shut on the architect as the community leader. It was exacerbated because of, you know, the, the depression and that took people out of jobs. Yes. And then the Second World War, you know, took people out of design jobs. But it, we never recovered from that. We never recovered mm -hmm. from that. Since my time in Congress, I have been sort of a, a lone voice out in the wilderness, not to make more of it than, than, it, than it was, but I have always said these were the problems that we could be solving yes. if we had control of those, at least participating in the control of giving direction to our country. Well, I guess that's what we're trying to do from the side, from design intelligence and certainly our friends at the Urban Land Institute and others who are trying to speak into the greater context of things. This is this is my crazy idea. Yeah. Um, and and I think I've, I've mentioned it before and I've gotten lots of eyes rolling. So this may be the same thing. But, you know, you sit in charge of a organization that is, is really looking for ways to solve these very difficult problems. Yes. One of the problems, as we are talking about right here, is, is the leadership problem. I grew up and lived and served in Congress for the state of New Hampshire. Every four years, we have a presidential primary. That is an incredibly wonderful platform from which one can make all kinds of proclamations. As long as you've declared you're running for the president, you get to go to all the meetings and to all the uh, debates and, and you get to say what you have to say. And I would say that we should find someone in our profession who is willing to run for president as an architect, not only as an architect, but mm -hmm. as an architect, as an important part of that platform. Mm -hmm. And to use that, you know, when I was running for Congress, I, I said, every house needs a good architect. And now speaking about the, you know, the, the House of Congress and the, the House of Representatives. But that's, you know, that's something that I think for a very relatively small investment, the profession could get extremely good exposure and people could hear about problem solving in ways that no politician talks about it. Absolutely. So that's my spiel now. Whenever I get a chance to talk on this, I have to make sure that I mention that we need someone running for president who's an architect or who has a credible ability to speak about the, the building background. Mm -hmm. We have a developer who was successful. I'm not sure he's the, the type that, that I would recommend, but I had hope when, when we heard him talk about his building experience that, that he might be able to uh, do something constructive, no pun intended, but um, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. No. Well, we really believe that the pertinent issues at hand today around climate change, extreme climate events, 
the issue of social inequities that have are at a boiling point again. You and I are old enough to know this isn't the first time. It's happened mm-hmm. multiple times. These are fundamentally design problems if you Absolutely. look at it, right? And yet, I would say most who serve in public office don't come from a design thinking context. And therefore, they don't see them as a design problem. And that's because we don't teach it in our schools. We don't talk about it at our dinner tables. We don't honor it in our communities. Three years in Denmark taught me a great deal about how design can totally permeate a community. And the Danes, like many of the Europeans, and I don't know, maybe it's the monarchies that, that you know give direction to this kind of thing, but I went over to Denmark thinking, oh good, I'm gonna go to some place where I'm gonna find architects serving elected office. Not any in the Folketing or the, or the uh, parliament. But what I did find out was because Denmark is such a small community and such a, a close-knit and, and design-oriented community, that the artists and the architects and the engineers were talking to the politicians. And that relationship was, was very fruitful and very productive. And so they had in the Folketing, they, they had at that time, I assume it's still there, they had a design review committee. And I thought, oh, wow, they're doing like charrettes. Oh, wow. No, but it's not three-dimensional, not building design. It's, it's legislative design. And what they're doing is they're evaluating legislation to determine what is the greatest percentage of population that will be favorably impacted by that legislation. And then they, will, they, would, they would grade them. Yeah, yeah I know, it's, it's, it's something wow. we don't even think about in this country. It, no. you know, it doesn't exist. Yeah, we could talk about how many, you know, how many particles of CO2 are being released into the air. We can talk about how many cars there are that are electric versus gas run, uh, fossil fuel driven. But we aren't even asking the question of how do we determine what ultimately has the best and biggest positive impact on society. We can't even ask, we can't even ask or answer those questions, let alone get down to the specifics of the technology or the science. Well, you you first have to pose the question before you can get to it and people are not posing those questions. No, no. And and those that are trying are are like going all the way for, you know, the Hail Mary pass as opposed to, no, you've got to, it's a, a, you know, three yards into the line slog and you just got to like plow ahead. That's right. So you and I operate off of a common set of values. You're a Mm values-based man and you've taught your children values, you and your wife, and it's passing to your grandchildren. It's obvious in your use of language here. So Ambassador, what are the essential values that we need to return to as a society to get a hold of these critical issues? Again, I, I state, in the time of Mr. Lincoln, awful issues were going on. In the times of Mr. Washington, wild things were happening, right? And I could, you know, there's obviously many more examples, but that somehow we have lost our value compass. Mm-hmm. And share with us, what do we need to get back to to start being more effective as a people for ourselves as well as for the world? Yeah, this is a tough question because a short answer could sound really simplistic and, and kind of cavalier. But a long one is far greater than the time we have available to to provide it. So I would say, and and I often have these conversations with my European friends, I would say this country was originally formed to protect individuals from being overtaken by uh, government, by the church, by the monarchy, by forces that were beyond their control. 
And so they were looking for a place to worship freely. They were looking for a place to, to be able to express themselves more individually within the community boundaries that were very rigidly set at that time. So there, there wasn't that problem. But if you look at how we have made our decisions in the Supreme Court over the 200 plus years that we've been in existence, most of the time we have come out in the favor of individual rights. And what has happened is that those individual rights have worn away at the institutions that have held us together in community. So what we're seeing is that people are becoming more selfish, they're becoming greedy, they're becoming more individualized. And, and now we are in a time where it is our identity, it is our social group, it is all the things that we're talking about are the things that separate us. And yes. we've forgotten the language of community. And so unless and until we get back to understanding that we are a community first, and this is what Washington said in his farewell address, he said in a letter, he said, we are Americans first and politics will divide us if we let it. Those are two pillars that he said, if we are not upholding our American identity and if we allow politics to creep in and divide our communities, we will weaken ourselves as a country. He also called for religious freedom. Not that we all have the same religion, but that we all can be in the town square and have the ability to express the religion that means most to us. Yes. And appreciate and, and, and tolerate and trust the others that, that exist. Obviously, we don't advocate for the extremism that we're seeing that has infected the world. But I think a lot of that has come about because of society's insecurities and their yes. feeling that they, they aren't being allowed to express themselves properly. Um, education. Washington said we all should have a good education so that we can have a good public debate about where things are and where things should go. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we have that. Our educational, public educational system is not what it was 30, 40 years no, ago. I mean, we don't teach basic civics no. anymore, you know, on how neighborhoods and towns are supposed to work in interdependence versus yeah. individualism. We don't teach that anymore. And two more things that Washington talked about. One, one is that we should be fiscally responsible. Mm. And he doesn't say that we should not have debt, but my gosh, $30 trillion of debt? I'm not sure that that's what he was thinking about at that time. <laughs> Even if you pare it down to what, what it was in his days. There dollar. probably wasn't a word no, trillion at the no, time, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they could count that far. Uh, and then lastly was he advocated that we engage in our foreign affairs for the formation of harmony and prosperity. Mm, mm. Um, and it seems that now we're always engaged in some kind of military entanglement. So. You know, if, if you read those 6,000 words, back at the beginning of the country, those 6,000 words were required memorization by all students wow. in the public school system. Wow. That was then pared down to the Gettysburg Address, a little shorter, but at least memorized in full. And now I don't think, I, I, none of my children had any kind of civic education no. that required that kind of memorization. Extraordinary. And so that's, I think, what, what is happening. And I always tell my Democratic friends that if you point out the differences between people, you're giving them an excuse not to like one another. If, if all I'm hearing are those, those differences, they would 
say, well, no, we're, we're saying this to give them, you know, um, a place in the, in the public light. And I say, if we're all in the same place in that public light, shouldn't we all be happy about that? And that's, that's not where we are. No. And, and, no. Uh, and unless and until we have leaders who can get back to that language, who can get back to, and I'm not saying we, we need to go back to the way things were, but we have to talk about the way things could be in the same way that we once talked about we were going to make a country. Yeah. It's critical for us as a nation and as well as a, a discipline to restore the foundations, get back to a yeah. place where we are solid again. Mm -hmm. What an extraordinary conversation. And I think we're going to continue a conversation like this in front of an audience later today at this Design Futures Council event. But for now, thank you for being with me today. Well, I thank you for asking the questions. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.